Hey, good morning, Harvest. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be jumping into Romans this morning. And as you're, as you're turning there, do you guys remember the, the fires in Australia? Do you remember that? How about the, the U.S. bases in the Middle East getting bombed or, or, the, or the, the shootings at the Texas school? I mean, those were huge news stories in January. And then, then a couple months after those things happen, something completely changes everything, right? COVID drops. We're given a, a bit of a longer March break, but then that March break turns into a longer break and, and we end up hiding out from this mysterious disease. We, and then on top of that, what happens? 2020 keeps going on and we hear about giant killer wasps are coming. More diseases are sprouting up. U.S. cities being turned upside down by, by protests and riots. And I just heard of this one a couple of weeks ago, fire tornadoes. What a, tornadoes of fire. Are you kidding me? I mean, it feels like we're living in a really bad Michael Bay movie. And there are a lot of reasons for us to look around at our world and feel like there's no stability. I mean, th those are just big news stories. But I mean, in the lives of people who we love, in the lives of people here at our church, there are people who are struggling with, with health issues. Loss of income struggling in, in hard relationships, battling addictions and, and depression and anxiety or, or the loss of loved ones. And, 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 and it can feel like life is this one great, big, huge storm. The, the storm of the actual crisis or just the storm of the fear and uncertainty and upheaval. And you can start to ask in the midst of this, is there anything that I can hold on to? Is there an anchor in the midst of this storm? And here we are in the second sermon in this series we're calling Anchored. And, and we're looking for what are those anchors, the anchors for my soul, foundations that don't move or crack. And so each week we're unpacking one of five anchors, five what, what, what people throughout church history have called the five solas. Sola, Latin for only, the five onlys. These five things that can hold the weight of my soul. These five things that, that I, I can give up anything else, but I will not let go of these. It's in these that I've got a sure and solid anchor. Last week, we talked about sola scriptura, the, by scripture alone. And, and this morning, we want to dig into another sola. Another solid anchor, a place that, that can withstand the storms of culture, withstand the storms of, of the brokenness of sin and the chaos of life. I mean, look around in our world, and it's so obvious to, to anyone, from a, a theologian to an atheist, that we live in a world that's broken. And this next sola gives us a, a firm hope in the midst of that brokenness where I can trust the, the truth in Hebrews 6.19 that says there's a, an anchor for my soul that can, can find a secure hold in Christ, that, that I can throw my anchor into that. I don't have to throw it into myself. I don't have to throw it into other people, into a relationship, into my stuff, that there's an, an anchor I can trust that's held firmly in Christ. The question I've got, and we unpacked that verse last week, the question I was left with, I get it that my anchor is sure in Christ, but what about the other end of that anchor? How can I know that I can hold fast to the rope on the other end? And this is where this second sola is so important. It's sola fide or, or by faith alone. That we're anchored by faith, anchored in faith. 
So you see this, this image of the anchor in Hebrews then isn't, isn't this picture of some dangling rope that hopefully I can hold on to in the midst of the storm. I know the other end's secure, but, but man, hopefully I can. No, no, it's in the finished work of Christ and our faith in that finished work of Christ that we hold fast. We hold fast because he holds fast. That anchor that's, that's firmly secure in heaven is just as secure on your soul. So let, let's, let's unpack that a bit this morning from Romans chapter 8. You see, leading up to Romans chapter 8, Paul writing this letter, he lays out for us our greatest problem in life. And the greatest problem is not, is not the coronavirus. Our greatest problem is not a strained bank account or or. or, or sickness or a broken relationship or a deep heart struggle, all of those are an evidence of our greatest problem. The greatest problem we have is that we've committed treason against the ruler of the universe. We've put our, our hope, our faith, our love, our allegiance in other things and not in God. Romans chapter 1 says that, that we've replaced God with other things. We've replaced our joy in him for our joy in creation. Romans chapter 3 says that all of us have fallen short of God's standard, short of his glory. So our, our greatest problem then in life is that every one of us is condemned. Every one of us guilty, every one of us rebellious and ruined, born sinners under the just wrath of a holy God. In fact, Romans chapter eight says that all of creation groans under the weight of this judgment and we see it everywhere. Every act of ugliness and hurt and misery flow out of this rebellion, this curse, this judgment. Every relationship is struggling against this. Every day we feel this. And so with all of that going on around us, it's an, it's, it's an eternal reality. The greatest problem we face today is that the creator of the universe has declared his just judgment, his eternal condemnation on all of us. Why? Because we've rebelled against him. So then where's our hope? Where, where's there an anchor in that ultimate storm of all storms? The storm that, that is, is the picture of all the other storms. Where, where do I have hope then? Where can I, I anchor in the midst of that? And we pick it up now in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, talking about God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's this saying? It's saying in the midst of us standing underneath God's judgment, our greatest problem facing us to, to read this and go, wait a minute, in that we can read that God knows you, that God called you, that God brought you into his family, declared you innocent, and he's now transforming you. I mean, how does that happen? It, it says here in verse 29 that he, he foreknew you. And this isn't just that, that God knew some facts about you. No, no, when it says that God knew you, that he foreknew you, it means he had a relationship with you. 
Or you get the same idea in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says that some people will come up to heaven and they'll be like, hey, here I am. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. It's not that he didn't know about them. It's not that he never heard about them. Jesus is saying, I never had a relationship with you. And so Paul is saying here in Romans verse, chapter 8, verse 29, he's saying, God set his love on you, had a relationship with you, loved you even before you existed. He foreknew you. Then he predestined you. He determined your destination. He determined that you're going to look like Jesus, that he has a purpose for you. And then he calls you into a relationship with him. How do I know? How do I know that I've been predestined and called by God? Well, scripture would say this, that you have a desire to know him. Because Jesus says in John 6, no one comes to the Father unless he draws them. So if you're coming to the Father, you've been drawn by him. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5, says that the gospel comes with words and conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God's Spirit in you, drawing you to have a desire to know him, to follow him, all of that evidence of the call. That's not you doing that. That's God's grace in your life, drawing you to himself. And here's where it gets really good. You're, you're known, you're chosen, you're called, and what's it say? It says you're also justified. That's our greatest problem, standing under condemnation right there, greatest problem being taken care of. We're justified. We're, we're counted as righteous, declared pure, justified, a way to remember it, just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees you now, justified and, and glorified, made like Jesus, perfect, and, and, and not glorified one day. For sure, that's coming for us in eternity. We will be glorified, but it's here in the past tense. It's as if it's already done. Look at the result of all of this. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you. I mean, th this is the rescue. This is the, the reversal that, that the wrath of God no longer against you, but now God is for you. I mean, how does that happen? How can I be sure that I'm standing before God who says he's, he's for me? Paul's about to unpack the result of this amazing news. But before we do that, how do I get to that place where I know that God is for me? Where I'm no longer under his wrath? How do I know that anchor has me held tight? And it's sola fide. It's through faith alone. In fact, you got your Bibles, flip back to Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 28. It says this, it says, for we hold that no one is justified, sorry, that we, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That you're, you're justified, you're declared righteous, that, that, that condemnation now reversed, how? Not by works of the law, but by faith. It's, it's not by striving harder, it's not by doing more, it's not a religious thing, it's by faith. 
You read the same thing in Galatians 3, 16. You read the same thing in Philippians 3, verse 9, that we're made right, we're accepted by God, not because of anything we do or don't do, but by trusting in, by, by putting our faith in, by resting the full weight of our souls on Jesus and what he did on the cross on our behalf. We don't add anything to that. It's by faith alone. If you're going to add a little bit of law, sure, sure, it's, it's trusting in Jesus, but also this. No, no, Jesus says, uh-uh, you have to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. You want to add a little bit of law to this? You have to add all the law to this. Our only hope is us resting by faith, resting our souls on Christ's perfection. I mean, look how Paul describes it. Look at verse 33 of chapter 8. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. So see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, this is what happens by faith. By faith, you rest in this. And then, then he says, who can condemn you? Well, we just read through the first part of Romans, God condemns us. He's the true and just ruler of the universe, but it says here, he doesn't. What does he do? He declares you innocent in Christ. Justified. Justified by faith. Now that word justification, it's actually a legal term. It means the opposite of condemned. If you stood before a judge and you were guilty, the judge would pronounce condemnation over you. Right? So you're, you're being sent out for punishment. You're entering into condemnation. You are condemned because you're guilty. Justification, it's the opposite of that. You're declared innocent. You're free to go. Here's the amazing truth of this, of this proclamation of justification. Through faith, we are justified. Through faith in Christ, justified, declared innocent, even though we're guilty. That's the mind-blowing truth of the gospel, that, that you weren't wrongly charged. You and I are guilty, and it says here, through faith in Christ, we're justified. We're free to go. How is that possible? I mean, you need to picture it this way, that, that you're standing in the courtroom of heaven, and you're guilty. You're ungodly, you're rebellious, and, and, and you know it. You know the, the Bible says you're guilty, but it doesn't take much for us to recognize even outside of reading a verse that says you're guilty to know that you have not lived up to God's perfect, moral, holy law, right? Our, our consciences scream out our guilt. And there's this prosecuting attorney in the courtroom. You have all these witnesses against you. Their accusations are flying. You feel the accusations. You know they're true. I mean, they're bringing evidence upon evidence. You're like, yeah, I know. I did that. I remember that. And there's the judge, God. And in that courtroom, none of those true, none of those legitimate accusations are allowed to stand. Why? Because they're being all overruled by the judge, all of them. From the smallest of sins to the most horrific of sins. Why? For one reason, the judge has declared you innocent. You're not guilty. You're justified. 
Even though in yourself, on your own, you are not justified. You're not innocent. What's it say? It says, it is God who justifies. No one can condemn you, not even you. Why? It's God who justifies. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died, it says. So so in that courtroom, it's not like Jesus is pleading your case by saying, come on, judge. Let's just overlook this sin. They're they're trying really hard. Look at some of the good they've done. No, no, Jesus isn't even pleading for mercy. He's asking for justice. Jesus already paid the price of your sin, all of it, on the cross. And he's saying, it's been accounted for. So you're justified. You're set free. You're made whole. Here's the amazing thing about this. Jesus doesn't just get you acquitted. When, when, when through faith alone, when you put your hope in Christ alone, you now have all the rights and all the privileges of someone who is perfectly righteous. You now get everything Jesus deserved. Why? Because he took what you deserve. And there's this exchange that happens on the cross. So, so, so listen, you're not just holding tightly to the end of the rope. No, no, Jesus is holding you. Jesus is empowering you. So, so look at what the word of God says. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So now knowing all of that, if, if God's for me, what else do I fear? He says, who can be against you? Now, if you're like me, you, you read that and you go, well, I can think of a lot of people who could be against me. You, you could have a boss who's against you. you. You could have a spouse who's against you. You could have a, a coworker who's against you. It, maybe it's more internal where you've got these inward struggles with, with addictions that are seemingly fighting against you with, with health troubles, with maybe d- difficult kids. And you're like, man, a lot of things are against me. And Paul's not saying, hey, hey, you won't face any trials any longer. But no, no, no. It's, it's now you know that no trial you face is greater than your God. I mean, it's like me in the fifth grade on my way to school where bullies were picking on me. And, and when I go to school and I say, hey, to my big brothers, hey, would you come with me to school today? Yeah, the bullies are still there, but I walk a little differently. Why? Because I have my brothers who are bigger than the bullies are with me. Proverbs 31, 25, it says that the, the godly woman laughs without fear of the future. The godly woman laughs without fear of the future. How is it? How, how could this woman, what, what, what makes this godly woman laugh without fear of the future? Is, is it because she has a, a great bank account? Is it because she, she works out and she's in really good health? Is, is it because she has a, a perfect marriage with this a, amazing husband? Does she laugh at the future because her, her house is like one perfect Pinterest photo? Her, all her kids get straight A's and they're just such great kids. All her friends are perfect. She lives in a country with the, with the, with the best politicians. Listen, if that's what you put your faith in, I mean, good luck with that. No, no, she laughs. Why? She has no fear. Why? Because she's put her faith in the God who's bigger than anything else that can threaten her eternity. A God who, as Paul says here, a God who's for her. 
who even promises to transform any of the things she's afraid of, that he, he could transform those in a means of his purposes in her life. Even the things that look hard, God says, I can even use those to make you more like Jesus. I mean, this is David looking into the, the valley of the shadow of death and saying, I don't fear because God's with me. He's not fearless because he's avoiding any valley. It's, he's not fearless because he thinks he's strong. It's impossible to avoid every valley of the shadow of death. His faith is not in his circumstances being better. His faith is in the fact that God is for him. And God's greater than any, anything in that valley. Now, how do we know, though? How, how do I know that God is for me? Look at verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, listen you, you can have this faith, a full faith in God. Why? Because he, prayed the, he paid the highest cost for your salvation. God paid the highest cost for you. And that shouldn't puff you up with pride. Say, man, yeah, I am pretty awesome. Look how great I am. No, no, no. It should, it should make God so glorious. It should make your soul secure. He said, God, you would pay that for me. That God, you would give up everything. That you wouldn't hold back the greatest price. Listen, God took care of your greatest problem at his greatest cost. Paul's saying this, why would God invest so much into you that he wouldn't then care for you? Why would we think that God would rescue us from sin but then not, not give us help in our struggles? Why would he give us the Holy Spirit but then withhold wisdom from us? And the proof that God is for us, the proof that he won't hold back any of his omnipotent power to bring us into the enjoyment of, of all things is that he didn't hold back giving us his son. I, I love Luke 12, 32. It's, it's a verse I hold on to in troubled times. It's a simple verse where Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that he says, fear not. Fear not, little flock. I like that. I'm just a sheep. I'm not even a big sheep. I'm not a powerful sheep. Man, I'm just a little sheep. But my father, not my employer, not my slave master, it's not his duty. It's not his obligation. It's his good pleasure. Like, like a dad coming home with these great gifts for his kids and the dad is brimming with joy because he's anticipating the joy of his kids. And, and it's God the Father who's bringing us his kingdom. This, this compassionate shepherd, this, this tender father, this powerful king, and he's for you. What do we have to fear? Look at verse 35. He goes on, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul's saying, listen, we have nothing to fear as when our life by faith is anchored in Christ. 
We're not just clinging to this rope. No, no, no. Through faith in Christ, we're more than conquerors. We're not just defeating the enemy. No, no, no. Christ has defeated the enemy so that it serves you more than a conqueror. That even suffering in the hands of God can serve us. And Paul throws in this quote from Psalm 44. When he says, we're like sheep being slaughtered all day long. It's a Psalm 44 where those reading it would have recognized it right away. It's a psalm where the psalmist is saying that, where the psalmist says in Psalm 44, God, you've abandoned us. Our, our, our sin has cut us off from you. It actually says, darkness is our only friend. And Romans 8, now Paul steps in here, and Romans 8 so clearly is saying, no, not, nothing can cut you off. Your sin didn't stop Jesus from dying in your place. Your sin didn't hold him in the grave. No, no, he rose again to life to conquer sin and death. And if God took care of your greatest need while you were his enemy, what do we have to fear? I mean, if if this morning you find yourself living in that dark, desperate, hopeless place of Psalm 44, you're precisely the person that Paul's talking about here, where, where your Psalm 44 is being swallowed up in Romans 8. So let me ask you, I mean, do, do you feel like a sheep to be slaughtered? Paul says, no, you're more than a conqueror. Do you feel like darkness is your only friend? Paul says, even death can't harm you. God's purposes are, are, are unchangeable. His, his power is unchallengeable. Through, through faith, his, his love is unconditional. So there's nothing we have to fear. All of those things that oppose you, persecution, famine, sword, earthly powers, demonic powers, fear, sickness, sin, all they do, they affect your situation. But listen, they don't touch your identity so you can hold fast. That what what Christ bought for you while he died on that cross was enabling you the power to hold fast. He bought the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. And, And so like, Paul in Philippians 3, let me encourage and exhort you this morning to to reach out and take hold of that for which has been taken hold of for you by Christ. Hold fast with all his might. So in fear, let's, let's stop grasping for power and influence, but by faith cling to Jesus who says, you have everything in me. Let's not grasp for approval of people, but, but by faith Grab a hold of the promise where we know that God has displayed his approval and his love for you in Christ on the cross. Let's not grasp for control, but instead by faith, hear Jesus who says, I'm in control and and I use circumstances to, to make you more like me. Let's not grasp for total independence, but but by faith, hold on to Jesus who says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's not grasp for performance, but by faith, hold on to Jesus who says, I love you no matter how you perform. Let's not in fear grasp for security, but instead by faith, hold tightly to Jesus who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Let's not grasp for things, but by faith we cling to Jesus who says your riches are in me. You're a child of the king. 
Let's stop grasping for, I have to, I have to, I need to, I need. And by faith, we cling to Jesus who says, it's by faith you've been justified. So for you this morning, what is there to be afraid of? What is there to fear or dread or worry about? Who is there who who, who can condemn you, discourage you, marginalize you? What unexpected news could devastate you? What unexpected diagnosis could, could send you spiraling into despair? Listen, you have no need to fear any part of the future, no matter how much famine or nakedness or persecution or sword it contains. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the great reversal of God's wrath over us, that God is for you and not against you. He's 100% for you, totally for you. So who can bring a charge against you? No one. Who who can condemn you? No one. What can separate you from Christ? Nothing. Why? Because God justified us. Because Christ died for us. Because his love is keeping us. And since God is for us, then no accusation, no condemnation, no separation. It's Martin Luther who said, if I could only believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And when he saw this truth in in Romans chapter eight, when he really saw it, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. How do you get to that place where God is 100% for you? How do you get to that place where no condemnation sticks? No accusation holds. How do you get to that place where where, where you see that there's no separation forever? How do you come to be in that courtroom, guilty but justified? The biblical answer is by faith alone. To rest your soul in that truth alone. And from that place, that that place of faith in what God has declared over you through the cross, we surrender our lives. We put to death sin. We pursue holiness. We live in the freedom of those who are loved and changed by God. And church, let's savor this truth. Let's show this faith to a watching world. Let's surrender to the Lord and and sing with confidence, live with confidence, not confidence in our circumstances, but we, we live with a joy and a faith and a hope. Why? Because we live by faith alone in the promises of God alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, even right now, Lord, we, uh, we give you our fears. We give you our grasping. We surrender by faith to you, Father, to the one who knows us, who loves us, who justifies us, who transforms us, and by faith we hold on to you. Jesus, knowing that you didn't come as a, as a teacher, but you came as a savior. That you didn't come for the strong, but you came for people who knew that they're weak. You didn't come to, to save us on the basis of what we do or our works, but on the basis of your work on the cross. And so, Lord, by faith, by faith we live. By faith in that truth We surrender to you as our Lord and our Savior, all for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.